Hello and welcome to today's episode of Spill the Theses, a podcast that brings to you the most important lessons of newly graduated master and bachelor students from various fields. I'm Levi, your host. And before we dig in, let me sketch out the amazing things that I got out of this conversation and why I think it's relevant to you. Communicating with the police is not necessarily part of our daily lives. Being talked to by a police officer is for many associated with something bad looming or having happened. Today, we will take a look at the other side and learn that also for trained police officers, it may be quite hard to find the right words. And not finding them can in many cases lead to escalation and violence. However, today's conversation is going to show that it doesn't have to get that far and what it means for a police officer to have a guardian mindset instead of a warrior mindset. All right, before we get started, could you please introduce yourself quickly to our audience? Perhaps tell us your field of study and what the title of your master thesis is. Yes, so my name is Maria Papathanasiu. I'm 27 years old and I am a psychologist and I also studied criminology and that's the thesis that I'm going to talk about. The title of the thesis translated is Open Up, it's the police examining police communication in terms of its transparency during house searches. So you're at home in the social sciences and As it is common in this field of study, how about we start off by outlining your roots as a researcher and how this specific research came about? So as I said before, I'm at home in the field of psychology, which means that my first contact with research took place during my bachelor's degree in psychology. And it resulted in several research papers during the course of my studies that strictly followed psychological research standards. That means quantitative research, meaning measurable results and very strict objectivity. So now in the social sciences, it's completely different working uh, with qualitative methods for me. In my psychological research, I mostly focused on user acceptance of AI, artificial intelligence, and the role that transparency plays in that field. And after I finished my master's degree in psychology, I decided to apply for a second master's namely international criminology, and my interest still remained in that field, though. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. This means you've dealt with the concept of transparency in your previous studies, and you've decided to take a new look at it through the lens of criminology. Why is it so important to speak about transparency in the context of police communication? Talking about transparency in the context of police communication is especially important because it's what society expects and what today's society demands from the police. At the same time, it's very difficult to define transparency. So what do we actually want from the police? Because um, transparency happens on so many levels. For example, when the police uses Twitter to inform citizens about any police operation or when communication teams talk to citizens during demonstration and so on, And what I was really interested in was the communication and the transparency of communication that happens behind closed doors in the privacy of people at home when so much is at stake. Mm -hmm. As part of your research, you did fieldwork, which consisted of you 
taking part in house searches conducted by the police on suspects. In your thesis, you write about certain steps um, and uh, procedures that the police officers were supposed to follow in these situations. Also, you write how these could vary depending on who was conducting the raid. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about how it was like for you being in the field, uh, given that the field was the private homes of strangers. Did anything strike you as particularly strange or um, surprising? I think the whole experience was new to me, even though I thought I knew how a raid would work, having seen them in movies, it was completely different in real life. And it was also very strange to just enter people's apartments without them asking me in. So I think the strangest part for me was finding my own role in those scenarios, because I am a clinical psychologist. I'm doing criminolo criminological research while wearing a bulletproof vest. That's just all very weird. <laughs> and I looked like a police officer to the residents, and it was particularly strange when they started to explain themselves to me personally. So I had to constantly remind myself of my role and kind of try to change my perspectives. Could you maybe tell us a little anecdote of how these house searches could vary depending on the police officers and their choices? There was a particularly strange situation where I witnessed a house search of a, of a suspect who was suspected of dealing with drugs. And his girlfriend was there also, and he named her his witness. And um, the police officer asked for his phone, and he gave it to him. And he said, please don't look at the photos, though. And the police officer obviously said, well, I kind of have to look at all the evidence that includes photos, so I'm going to check your gallery. And, well, the suspect just nodded kind of sadly. Mm. <laughs> and, and then... The officer looked at the phone. After a while, he gave it back to him. He said he didn't find anything and we left the, the apartment. And then in the car, the officer said to me that there were a bunch of naked pictures of another lady. And that was not, well, the lady was not his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And I asked, well, is that the reason you think why well, he didn't want you to see it? And he said, yeah, probably. And some colleagues might have, might have, asked him something like, who's this lady? Um, mm -hmm. But he said that's too private and that's not his role. And I thought that, well, obviously that's not his role, but I thought mm -hmm. that was quite interesting, that situation. Yeah, it, it seems quite tempting to take a moral stance in these types of situations. However, I also understand how important it is as a police officer to stay objective and to not play God and try to manipulate the life of a suspect. So thank you very much for these insights into your fieldwork. Let's now take a bit of a closer look at your thesis and um, let's talk a bit about the findings. So my findings suggest that transparency in communication represents a continuum. That means that I noticed various transparency practices that were used by the police officers, which were sometimes intentionally used and sometimes I think subconsciously used. They either allowed for more and sometimes for less transparency in communication. Um, and reasons or motives that led to the selection of a certain transparency practice were sometimes tactical. Other times they were guided by, for example, moral principles. And in many cases, 
they were simply a manifested routine. I also found generational differences and differences in the professional training and practice prior to the current position, and that those effects, well, affected the attitude and behavior towards suspects and citizens. I think my main finding is that empathy seemed to play a major role in communication and that it automatically influenced transparency practices. Okay, what you're saying is that there are many factors that influence the transparency of police communication. And you found out that empathy is one of the main factors. How exactly did you find out about this? So during my research, police officers were to read uh, a fictional house search written quite soberly in the perspective of a young suspect living with his mother and sister. And the fictional dialogue between the police officer in charge and the suspect revealed different transparency practices used by the officer. Afterwards, I asked my interviewees about their thoughts uh, on the communication. And, well, they explained it to me. And then they were to read the same exact situation, but this time the suspect's thoughts and feelings were included, much like an inner monologue. And as expected, the police officer suddenly found more things to criticize concerning the communication. So although they agreed that the thoughts and feelings were very understandable in retrospective, the change of perspective made it experienceable, kind of. Um, yeah. So triggering a change of perspective and empathy seemed to make them more attentive and sensitive concerning communication and transparency. And I think that was my main finding. So... Earlier, you said that there are motives for which grade of transparency one uses. However, this can also happen subconsciously as part of a routine. In this context, you write about a paradox according to which transparency mostly led to cooperation. But whenever an officer encountered resistance, they seem to have been less transparent towards the affected. How can this be? Yeah, I experienced, I experienced that often. However, I think that is a very human reaction of defense. So like when I'm friendly to you and you shout at me, I will at some point stop being friendly to you, even though it is obvious that friendliness is probably more helpful than defending myself by shouting back at you. I was described situation when officers told me that they tried to explain calmly why they acted in a certain way, but the person kept on resisting and... Um, then they just reduced communication altogether. That means that they weren't solely less transparent, they actually just communicated less, which did not facilitate the situation. And of course, it is known that de-escalation through communication is usually the solution to such resistance, but it doesn't seem to be particularly well-trained in the police. At least that's what I hear from the officers. De-escalation through communication. Does this mean what you in your paper refer to as addressee appropriate speech and proportionality? Yes. So translated addressee appropriate speech sounds a little weird, I think, but it, um, it's supposed to describe a language that is adapted to the recipient. So it assumes that what is said is being understood. That means the words that we use when talking to a teenager or a non-native speaker should differ from the language that we use when talking to, uh, let's say, a German adult. 
So language is used flexibly and should be used flexibly. The goal should always be that the recipient understands what is be what is being said. Um, and proportionality in this sense describes the means of action. So I witnessed, for example, the house search of an elderly lady. Um, she was accused of dealing with drugs. And although usually in this case, one would ram the door open and secure the rooms, the officers decided that it would be a little bit irresponsible to enter the apartment in that manner since an old person could suffer a heart attack mm. and at the same time would probably not be able to quickly get rid of all the evidence because, well, she might be a little slower. <laughs> That's kind of what I mean with proportionality. Another example would be when the police is accompanied by special ta task forces. This was, for example, the case uh, when the apartment of a person was searched who had previously threatened the police officer. Um, he had said that next time he'd see him, he would stab him. So the police has to kind of weigh the potential danger of a situation and the least severe mean to respond to it. And that's proportionality. Understood. And even though these means of de-escalative communication are often used subconsciously, they can be trained and manifested into one's mindset. Here you speak about a guardian mindset and a warrior mindset. What's the difference? So a guardian mindset is the opposite of a warrior mindset in that sense. Um, it's a term that I didn't make up. It's something that I found in research already, uh, in, in police research. Research suggests that the so-called warrior mindset is a result of police training and in-group processes. So police trainees are often being taught that in practice, they will be confronted with constant danger and they have to be alert at all times. And you can even see that in their operational training. They are supposed to react to extreme situations, which almost never happen in real life. And I understand how they should be prepared for those situations. However, Verbal and nonverbal de-escalative communication is not part of the program. So a self-image is being taught that is one of a warrior on the street who is always ready to fight back. And this self-image is reinforced during group processes with strong solidarity um, to one another. It's a kind of us versus them mentality on the street. A guardian mindset, meaning someone who sees oneself as a protector committed to de-escalation through empathy, respect, and communication, has a whole different approach. That, however, is not being taught in police academies. Your thesis culminates in something that can be seen as a solution to the identified problem of intransparent police communication, a way to foster more guardian mindsets through police training. Can you describe to us what the solution looks like according to your research? If I had to summarize my findings and my solution in one word, it would be reflection. And by that, I mean constant self-reflection, group reflection, and reflection of the whole system, the whole, whole police system. Um, of course, as in psychology, it's obvious that that's my solution, But I actually think that it would work because police trainees are not being taught to be reflective. They are supposed to act. They are supposed to write protocols about what they're doing, but they're not supposed to think about how they felt when they did that, why they did that, what was the reason they used this mean instead of another one. And 
I think that the process of reflection after an operation is the key to to get better. And um, sometimes I felt like a lot of the police officers were not okay with how, let's say, the case leader would behave, but they didn't say anything afterwards because mm -hmm. it wasn't their case. And I think maybe that's also, that has something to do with the hierarchy and uh, the police structure. But I think the solution would be to start self-reflection from the beginning. So from day one in police academy, everything you do, why do you do it? And yeah, and honestly, I was surprised to see that the police doesn't have uh, a supervision, something that is so common in every job that interferes with other human beings. But the police who see so much and so such bad things, they never do it. Why not? And I think maybe helping them talk about what they see, what the experiences might not only um, make them more empathetic and more transparent in communication, but might maybe even make them healthier psychologically. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that supervision could be beneficial in many ways. Yes, supervision, external supervision, but also internal supervision. It doesn't have to be in group with a supervisor. It can be with a partner. It can be in the classroom after practice. It can be during practice, right after an operation. The tra trainer could ask, "Why did you do this? Why didn't you ask? Why didn't you ask the person nicely to, I don't know, lower the knife?" Maybe there's a reason to it, but I think reflect, constant reflection, self-reflection and group ref reflection could um, could help make everyone a little more of a guardian and less of a warrior. That's great to hear. So my fingers are crossed that these supervisions will get implemented throughout police practice in the near future. For the final question, I would like to zoom out a bit and talk about your personal experience. Did anything change in your attitude towards the police or the affected? I don't think that this research has actually affected my attitude towards the police, um, but it has given me a different perspective to the one that I had prior. I work as a counselor for criminal youth and I have talked to many young people and teenagers who have experienced house searches as suspects. And I have talked to them about what that has done to them. For example, being 15 years old or 17 years old and your mother or your sister is in the house and they're scared and they don't understand German. And the police officer tries to explain what's happening, but you're not allowed to translate because you're only allowed to speak German. So the mom is crying and you can't really calm her down because it's not allowed to talk to her in, 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 in your language. And those are almost traumatic experiences for both sides, so mother and teenager. And um, now I also experience the other side and why sometimes it is necessary to set strict rules and to say, no, you're not allowed to speak in your native language because you might give away um, any information about evidence that we're looking for and we can't risk that. So I think it has changed my perspective or maybe broadened my perspective on the whole concept of police communication. 
And so it has broadened mine and hopefully also the perspectives of our audience. Finally, what are the next steps for you and your research? So the next step is to present my results in front of the police and um, also my professors. And I'm particularly happy to be able to do that because pieces that aren't published usually just are forgotten. And uh, I'm really happy to have written it in such a practical field where the other side is actually interested in what, I've, what I have to say. So I'm going to try to use this opportunity to talk to the police and someone in charge and maybe tell them my views and give them or inspire them to maybe change something. We are rooting for you to have an impact. Thank you very much, Maria, for this thought-provoking conversation. Thank you for having me.